Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians. <laughs> I don't know where it went. This will be interesting. Put this in. So if you turn me down. All right. Let's see how this goes. Ephesians, take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking at the first seven verses this morning. Be ye followers of God as dear children and walk in love. As Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, as an, uh, give himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become as saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye, be not ye therefore partakers with them. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning seeking to be fed from your word. Lord, I pray that you'll put off the weariness of this flesh, the worries of this world, and help us to wholly, solely focus upon your word this morning. Feed us from your word this morning. Pour out your spirit upon us. Lord, I pray that you'll be with all those who are delivering your word this morning, that if there be someone there who's lost or someone who's in sin, that you'll pour your spirit upon them, convict them, and turn them again to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we closed last Sunday evening, we looked at the victorious results of putting on the new man every day. Uh, when we put on the new man every day, uh, truth will be spoken in our lives. When we put on the new man every day, lying will be put away. When we put on truth every day, we will find no place for the devil in our lives, no corrupt communication, no anger, no bitterness, no wrath. Forgiveness will be the overflowing of our life. But Paul's not really done with this matter. In the first seven verses, he challenges the Ephesians to not give in to the world that is around them. This world that is around them that is appealing to the flesh. I know there has been different portions of this study in Ephesians where it seems like Paul is being redundant. Didn't we just talk about loving one another? Didn't we just talk about forgiveness? Didn't we just talk about putting away corrupt communication? 
And here we are in the first seven verses of chapter five. And it seems like that we've returned to it again. Paul is being repetitive, but it's repetitive with purpose. Even more, our theology brings us to an understanding that Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So really, it is the Holy Spirit trying to reaffirm a truth within us. To bring us to this reality again of who we are supposed to be in Christ. Also, it is a reminder to what the Ephesians were facing during this time. I mean, really, the Ephesians... I would say lived in one of the most corrupt environments of any of the New Testament churches. This city was based in a port city and it was a constant influx of the corruptness of the world. The, the idols of all around that area would be brought into Ephesus and these Ephesians would be wooed away as another idol would come in, as another false deity would come in, and they would find themselves bamboozled by this false doctrine. Even more, Ephesus was so corrupt that prostitution was, was worshipped. It was a, a form of worship unto their deity. Perversion was not only accepted, but it was promoted. I guess you could say that Ephesians is the judges of the New Testament. It seems that every man did that which was right in their own eyes. So as these idols and as this mythology would continually confront the Ephesians, Paul is continually reminding them that is the world, that is not you. Matter of fact, chapter 4 and chapter 5 there's not much difference in between them. We understand that chapters 1, 2, and 3 covers the blessings. It covers our belief system. It covers who we are in Christ. But chapter 4 and chapter 5, we are constantly being brought back to this situation about how we walk in Christ. Ch chapter 4 and verse 1 says that we should walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. Chapter 4 and verse 17 says, Henceforth not, do not walk any longer as the Gentiles walk. Chapter 5 and verse 2 tells us that we are to walk in love. Chapter 5 and verse 8 says we should walk as children of light. And then chapter 5 and verse 15 says that we should walk circumspectly. See, what Paul is emphasizing in 4 and 5 is that 1, 2, and 3 should impact you so much that it should change how you conduct yourself in the world, no matter how perverse the world is. We should be able to stand even in the darkest times in our nation. We should be able to stand for truth regardless of what the world is publishing. So he goes on here in these first seven verses to say that that was the way that the world was, yet it is the reminder to us that there is a behavior that has been excluded from the Christian walk. 
They said that there was a little boy's mother who had just made a fresh batch of cookies. She told the little boy that soon as dinner is over, she, he could have one of those fresh cookies. The mother then returned back to the kitchen, and as she was in the kitchen, she could hear the glass lid slide off of the cookie jar. She quickly hollered out to her son, son, what exactly do you think you're doing? The boy, in a soft and sweet voice, responded back to his mother. He said, mom, my hand is resisting temptation inside of the cookie jar. The truth is, there's no such thing as resisting temptation with our hand inside of the cookie jar. There's no such thing as resisting sin if we decide to get involved in it. If we put ourselves in the environment, it seems of certainty before long, we will find ourselves falling into this sin. So Paul says, this is what you have to do. If you want to find yourself in a situation in which you're going to fall back into sin, but if you want to find yourself in a situation where you can abstain from sin, you got to follow the right people. So he says in verse number one, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And in the beginning of verse number two, he says, and walk in love. Paul has brought us back to this family mindset. This word followers comes from the Greek word mimetes. You can almost hear it in there. It's where we get our English word imitate. So Paul is saying that we should be imitators of God. In our home, I have a specific child who shares my personality. And at times when he overshares that personality, my wife quickly reminds me that he gets all of that from you. I take it as a compliment, I suppose, because she married me. But there are times that when we tell each other that our children are imitating us, it kind of makes us cringe because there are times that our children pick up bad habits from us. And it cringes when we see that in them. But here Paul reminds them that we should be imitators of God, that we should be imitators of our heavenly father. Now, this is an interesting statement when you really think about it, that Paul is telling us as believers that we should imitate God. Now, if we leave it there in and of itself, we would find ourselves confused because how can we imitate God? I mean, we can't imitate him in his power because he's omnipotent. We can't imitate him in his presence because he's omnipresent. We can't imitate him in what he knows because he's omniscient. We are not like him. Them are alone his attributes. These are these things that, these characteristics that he possesses. So Paul wants to further enlighten us to what he says. He says, be ye therefore followers of God as their children. So he's saying, 
You guys are to imitate God, but he again brings us to this thought, this word, therefore. This word, therefore, is a strategic term of conclusion. It is a conclusion which introduces us to a logical result. So what he's saying here in verse number one, because of what I have previously told you, we should imitate God in the same way. Well, what did he just tell us? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, the previous verse, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So he says, because God has done all of this, you should be imitators of God in the very same manner as your heavenly father was. You should be in the same to others because after all, didn't you learn this from your heavenly father? You are his dear children. We are challenged to imitate God in this characteristic. I mean, after all, kindness, tenderheartedness, uh, forgiveness, these are all characteristics of who? God. Who is what? Who is love? He is infinitely all of those things. And we imitate God when we become those things. Because we are imitating the source of love, the source of kindness, the source of forgiveness. Who is God alone? So he says, be imitators of God. Then he brings us to this, as dear children. Now, why does he do this? Why does he bring us to this when he says, as dear children? For those who were our parents, it would be strange to you if you heard your spouse one day telling your child to stop acting like the father who lives up the street. You, you would be puzzled by that. What is this? What are you even talking how, how did he learn that? He don't even live there. He ain't biologically related to him. He ain't raising him. What in the world does that even mean? Well, that's exactly what it would sound like. If Paul was to tell them, be ye imitators of your heavenly father, if he said it to a lost man. But Paul brings this as dear children. It, it comes from this Greek word, technon, which is to say, this is relational. This is to say that God is your heavenly father. So he says that, that we should imitate God who is our heavenly father because after all, we are of certainty his children. So he says, be imitators of God. Now, let me say this another way. It would be like your father since you are his children. Now, uh, let me think about this here. Now, I suppose that I could tell you more about my father than anyone else in the room. Matter of fact, in my short time, I had pretty much mastered the understanding of my father. I could tell you how he would respond to a situation before I even told him the situation because I knew him so well. So Paul says that because we know our heavenly father so well, because we have his word to understand who our father is and how our father behaves towards 
people who are lost because we have this grand understanding who our Heavenly Father, who better to speak about who our Father is than his children? This is the same explanation as you know your earthly father as we would know our heavenly father after all. Romans chapter 5 says about his children that it is us who have experienced the love of God. It is us who've had the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, which was given to us by the Holy Ghost. We have experienced this love from our Father, forgiveness from our Father, mercy from our Father. Therefore, we know what it's all about, and we understand because what we've experienced, how to imitate it all the more. This is uh, really a, a challenging thought, that the love that we experienced from God, that we are this same love that we experienced, we are to replicate to others. Wow. That's a challenge. That we should imitate God so much after salvation. We should imitate God so much that people take notice and are puzzled. G. Campbell Morgan, in his uh, autobiography, wrote about in the Welsh revival in 1904 that the people who hauled all of the cargo throughout the towns, they were the lowest of the low, he said. They were the worst of the worst, the foulest of the foul. They cursed, they kicked, and matter of fact, oftentimes people felt sorry for the horses that drug their chariots, or not chariots, you know, it's 1904, wagons. So, but the, one, the man who managed these men who hauled all the cargo around after, as the Welsh revival began to break out in 1904, the one who managed all of these haulers came to G. Campbell Morgan and was furious with him. He said, we can't get nothing hauled around this town anymore. He said, these haulers, they've experienced this gospel, and they can't even get the horses to move any longer because they no longer have obscenity in them. They no longer have kicks in them. The men are trying to get the horses to move, but these horses, they, they are standing there puzzled. What happened? G. Campbell Morgan said, as this story was being told to him, this very text came to mind that they were no longer imitating the world. They were no longer behaving like the world, but they had now had a change in their heart. Well, what is the change in their heart? What happened to them? Verse number two tells us this. And they what? They began to walk in love. Walk in love as Christ also had loved us and had given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, when we study our Bible, we understand that in Scripture, there are different types of love. We have the love philia, which is where we get the name Philadelphia, what, the city of brotherly love. We have eros, which is this romantic love. But when he challenges them to walk in love, this is agape love. This is God's love. God's love that he has bestowed upon us. Now, many are confused about this type of love, though. 
When we reference agape love, we say, of course, this is God's love that is shown down upon us. But notice what Paul says. He says, this same love that God had upon us is the same love that we should walk in. To walk in this agape love means to tread about, to walk here and there, to walk around something. It really means to dwell in the sphere of something. So he's saying to dwell in the sphere of this agape love. To walk in it also means to walk, means to make progress in this. So he says, Walk in this love, make progress in understanding, in showing, in telling of the agape love that is in you. Even more, walk is in the present imperative, which is a command for us to walk in this love. Now, why is this so important? Because Paul is not going to leave us with any excuse. The example that he's going to give us in verse number two of what it means to walk in this kind of agape love should send ripples across the Christian community. He says here, walk in this love as who? As Christ so Christ also has walked as Christ also hath loved us. Agape love again. So God loved us, agape love. So much that he, John 3, 16, sent his only begotten son. Christ agape loved us so much that he what? That he gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. He goes on in verse number two, he says, And he gave himself for us as an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. His sacrificial offering produced a sweet-smelling savor to God. Hear me now. That's exactly what a sacrificial offering does to God. Sacrificial offerings benefit others, but they bring blessings to God. Put it in this perspective. All of us who are parents, we kind of understand we always love our children. But there are times in our children's life where they do something, maybe an accomplishment. They say something, a milestone. And in that very moment, we are just swelled up with joy. And we say, that's my son. That's my Daughter, It's this moment of excitement. It's this moment of being proud. We couldn't even be any prouder. That is exactly how God feels. It is a sweet-smelling savor unto God when we live a sacrificial life, a life that benefits others for his glory, and that we sacrifice of ourselves. When we live our lives not thinking about ourselves, but thinking about his children, it is a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. Now, you may not think of it in this manner, but it is even more true. When you sit down maybe and do your tithes and offerings envelope, not really so much the tithing portion, but the offering portion. When you're given of the offering, you're, you're, you're sacrificing of what you have 
for someone else. Whether it's for missionaries, whether it's for the church, whether it's for whatever you give it to, this offering is a sacrifice of your own. It's a sacrifice of your finances. This, is, this produces a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. Now, I'll write a soapbox for a minute if you let me. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21 says that when you give, when you do, whatever you do, let the glory be unto the church. I am a firm believer that if you want to bless somebody, if you know someone in the church has a need, if you know that someone in the church needs help and you want to be a blessing to them, let the church be the conduit of that blessing. Because when they arrive here at the church, I don't want them to think much of me because I gave them the offering. I want them to arrive here at the church and say, I thank God because this church has put, been such a blessing to me. I mean, think about it in this reason. If Brother Jason Reinhardt begins to have a burden to give me something, who burdened him? So why should he get the blessing? So let it all flow through the church. Even more, what he says here, when he says, and walk in love as Christ also have loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Let's not forget this example that's given here. The example that's given here is that this offering and this sacrifice to God is a sweet-smelling savor. This is the greatest example that Paul could offer unto us of agape love. So he says to walk in agape love as Christ walked in agape love. And then he said, now let me show you how Christ walked in agape love. He gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice for others which produced a sweet-smelling savor. The greatest evidence, this is what Paul's saying to us, the greatest evidence of agape love in your life is undeserved forgiveness. This is the greatest example. This is what God had for us when he sent his son. This is what Christ had for us when he sacrificed. And if we're supposed to walk in it, the agape love is manifested when we give someone, when you got them dead to rights, and you forgive them anyways. When God looked down from heaven upon us, if he would have just poured out his anger and his wrath and his justice upon us, we deserved it. No one could have questioned that. No one could have said, that was unfair. You had no right to do that. He had every right to do this. But what God did is instead poured out his loving kindness upon us and forgave us of our sins. So when someone in the church offends you, or when another brother or sister offends you, walking in agape love is the recognition that the offense, now we still believe that when we got saved, that Christ's blood covered the sin of the past, the sin of the present, and the sin of the future, right? We still believe that. 
We believe that sin hinders fellowship, but my sin does not hinder that he is still my heavenly father. It doesn't ruin relationship. So if the salvation that I have, the blood that Jesus shed covers the, the, the sins of past, present, and future, what it really means is that if I offend you today, and do you harm in this church, and I seek forgiveness, the very sin I committed against you, God knew all about it, and it was covered under the blood. Now, if we say, this is the danger in which we enter into, if we say in our hearts that we will not forgive someone who's wronged us, it is to say that we have a higher level, a higher requirement for my forgiveness than God had for us to be forgiven. We have a more higher standard, a more righteous standard in our own mind. How foolish does that sound? Even more, when we seek not to forgive those who wronged us, what we're really saying is, Lord, if you could ever see fit, to remove the blood in which your son died for, for this very sin. One sin will send you to hell, not covered. But this very sin right here, can you just remove the blood that was shed for this sin so that your wrath could be poured out upon it? What is this? Romans chapter 5 says for what us believers, for about us believers what? That we are at peace with God. Yet relationship can be hindered, yet relationship can be harmed. So he says that this is the greatest form, the greatest example of agape love, this undeserved forgiveness that God could look down on rebellious, wretched, vile mankind and still forgive them even when he has us dead to rights. Even though he has us in a situation in which we cannot escape. So to continue this, to, this amazing thought, we are imitators of God, but when we are given the example of love, it's brought back to Jesus Christ. We imitate God because God forgave our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are to imitate God when we offend each other that that sin is forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness that God has for our sins because we walk in this same love is the same love that we have with each other. Even more, he says all the more in verses really three through five. He goes on to say that not only do we see this demonstrated love, I guess you could say, but we also see this put away life. We, well, you know what? Even more. One more thing about this demonstrated love. Matthew chapter 25 um, I'll turn there. We'll find it. Matthew chapter 25. When the Lord was speaking 
to the disciples about this demonstrated love that we have, this, this love that we have for one another. 25 in verse number 34. He says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was, for I was and hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and ye visited me. I was in prison and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous, the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee? Question mark. Or thirsty and gave thee drink? Question mark. When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, question mark, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we the sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king answered and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. What is this of this love? Have you ever thought about this? That when you meet the needs, when we meet the needs of each other, we, when we met the needs of this dear brother whose church was in need, it was the same as doing it unto our heavenly father. And by the way, in reverse, when we have the means to do so, when we turn it away, the opportunity to meet the needs of one of his children, it is the same as turning away the opportunity to meet the needs of our Lord, if he even had needs. To do it for him is to do it to him, and to do it against him is, uh, to, to not do it is to do it against him. So he says even more, we, we see this demonstrated love that Paul is after, that we are to walk in this love. But even more, we see this demonstrated love. But we also see in verses 3 through, 5, 3 through 5, he says, you have to remind yourself that you are to demonstrate the love of Christ, but in the same breath, you have to discard your lust. You got to get rid of it. Verses 3 through 5, but fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolishness, talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, I want to say something. This does not mean that someone who's committed one of these sins are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, I wish it meant that, that we would never find people who have this new life in Christ fallen into these sins. Read your biblical history. 
The Bible will teach us people who are saved have fallen into these sins. I mean, David obviously is right there at the top. Man after God's own heart, yet he coveted another man's wife and took her and murdered. But even more, this is, Paul is saying that you have to disregard these things, but also recognize he's not saying that you have to disregard them in the aspect that believers won't fall into them. But what Paul is trying to do, he is categorizing these sins to say these sins should not be the life in which believers live. There's something different about believers. That is the unbeliever lifestyle. That is what the category of sins that unbelievers do. But for believers, we shouldn't participate in this at all. Matter of fact, look at verse number five when it comes to this. Or no, verse number six. He says, let no man deceive you with vain words. After he says, this is the category of sin that unbelievers do. This is how they live their life. He turns back to the Ephesians again and say, listen, do not let anybody deceive you with vain words. Meaning, listen, don't, don't listen to what the world says. Don't listen to what anybody in Ephesus says. If they tell you that you can get saved and go back to living like the world, it's not true. Them are vain words. Don't let any man trick you that just because you're saved, you can now go live however you want. It's not true. Even more. He says, let me say this. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. He said, because of these things, because these vain words, because of this foolishness, God chastises those in whom belong to him. But even more, even more than this, God's wrath will be poured out upon the children of disobedience. And if you're wondering what Paul's final thought is about those people in verses 3 through 5, he summarizes it in verse number 6. He says, Be not ye therefore partakers with them. If anybody wants to live a dualistic life, if anybody wants to profess that they have this new life in Christ, and yet they want to go out and live like the world, act like the world, covet the things of the world, put their hand in the cookie jar and act like they're resisting temptation. They're not fooling nobody. Paul says when it comes to these people, listen, don't fall for their vain talk. And whatever you do, don't even be partakers with them. Why? Because there's no such thing as resisting temptation with your hand in the cookie jar. You think you can resist sin, this devil is so sly. The best thing for us to do is follow after God. If we will just imitate God, we will never find ourselves in a situation we shouldn't be in. If we will just imitate God and follow after him and walk in his love, we will be so busy thinking about others that we won't be thinking about ourselves. You know, it's, we was talking in Corinthians this morning in Sunday school, and I ran a little further ahead uh, than Brother Brandon, but it said there, charity does not puff up. Why doesn't charity puff up? 
Because as we've seen, agape love, that's charity. Agape love is a love that's always focused on the benefit of others. And since you're always focused on others, you're never worried about puffing yourself up because you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about others. And this is the world in which we are to be walking in. Now, does this make sense why Paul is trying to say that the church is united as one body? Could you imagine what would happen if the whole body of Christ across this United States took up with this thought process that they was no longer going to think of the things of themselves, but only on the things of others, as Paul says in Philippians? <sighs> Couldn't imagine the missionaries that would reach funding. I couldn't imagine the amount of, it's not just money, it's time, request, petitioning the Lord to help people. All of these things, when we think about the things of others, you know what, if we would get focused on things of others, we probably would be uh, a lot less depressed. Because we only really find ourselves sad when we think about what we don't have. But we find ourselves overjoyed when we have the opportunity to be a blessing to others. What is that? It's not for praise. It's because we are walking in love. Because we are imitating God who poured out his tender, loving mercy and kindness and grace upon us. And we are just behaving like our Heavenly Father. And if someone offends you, as Paul says... Be like God in the aspect that we recognize that trespass is covered under the blood. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we give thanks to you for this opportunity again to dive in your word. Lord, I pray that you'll continue to bless us as we move through this study in Ephesians. I know it's Coming to an end soon, Lord, but I have learned and gleaned so much from your word, Lord. We give thanks to you for all that you've done. Be with us here this morning, Lord. Be with Brother Jason as he prepares for this evening. We're excited to hear from uh, what you've laid upon his heart for, to, for us to hear this evening. We give thanks to you for all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.